Uh, but this morning, I'm really excited to jump into this new uh, five-week sermon series with you entitled Little Book, Big Message, um, or as uh, Steve Mitchell um, mentioned in our, our pre-service meeting this morning, he said, you should have called it One Hit Wonders. Uh, it's another good title we could have gone with. But uh, we're studying through the, the single chapter books of the Bible. And I got the idea for this series two years ago uh, when I took over as lead pastor here. And I felt like the Lord really gave me a vision and, and just put a burden on my heart that I wanted by God's grace and with his help, if he would allow me to preach through the entire Bible in the course of, of my ministry. And so I started uh, back in 2019 with the Gospel of Mark. seemed appropriate to start with Jesus. And uh, then we, we went in 2020, we, we went all the way back to the beginning, book of Genesis, and made it through chapter 22 together uh, before we decided we all need a little bit more hope in the midst of the pandemic. And um, we pivoted to a Psalms of Hope series uh, to finish out 2020 last year. And uh, now we're, we're getting back into... Um, done some other topical series, but I did the math this week, and I realized that my, at my current pace, we've covered uh, 62 chapters together in 100 weeks now, that I'm on track to finish the Bible in just under 37 years. And uh, I took over here when I was 34 years old, and so that means I would have to wait until I was 71 to retire. But if you count not by the chapters covered, but by books of the Bible covered, I calculated if I can preach through five entire books of the Bible in just these next five weeks, then that will mean I've preached through 6.6 books of the Bible in my first two years here, and that will put me on pace to finish all 66 books and get back on the beach with a pina colada in hand at the tender young age of 54. And so that, that's kind of, yeah, snaps, that's kind of uh, part of the, the not-so-spiritual motivation uh, for this series is to give me some you know, um, make a dent in, in God's Word. But all jokes aside, I'm, I'm looking forward to studying through five whole books of the Bible with you together these next five weeks. I hope you can join us for all five. Uh, this morning, as introduced by the Bible Project video just a moment ago, and I would commend those resources to you, by the way, if you're not familiar yet, um, excellent summaries of uh, books of the Bible. But we're starting the book of Obadiah, and uh, Obadiah is the only single chapter book of the Old Testament. It is the fourth shortest book in the Bible, uh, just 440 words in its original Hebrew language, according to BibleGateway.com, which is the most commonly used online Bible website resource. Uh, Obadiah is the least popular book in the entire canon of Scripture. It is the book least searched for on their search engine online. My, my hope today is that uh, after this sermon, you'll have a whole new appreciation for this short but historically and theologically rich book. One of the reasons that Obadiah is so unpopular is that we know so little about it. We don't know who wrote it, the name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh, and the Old Testament mentions at least 12 different individuals called Obadiah, but none of them wrote this book. Uh, we don't know for sure when it was written. We know it was sometime. We want heart transformation this morning. Amen? So that's, that's going to be our prayer. Would you stand with me as you're able as we read the entire book of Obadiah together? But you don't even have to do that much stretching because it's only 21 verses long. 
Hear the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, oh, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people and the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster and the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. It shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for every part of it, that it is all 
God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, that we may be complete, lacking in nothing. That means we need to study even the most small and obscure of books, least popular, or popular enough for you to include in your holy and perfect word. And so we thank you this morning for it. We pray that now as we seek to humble ourselves under the authority of your word, would you use it to give us not just historical information, but heart transformation to change us and shape us more into the image and likeness of your son. For our good and for your glory, we pray this morning in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So God warns here the Edomites, and he reassures his people, the Israelites. First, he warns the Edomites in two ways, two bullet points. Number one, God will humble the proud. Verses one through nine, he's going to humble the proud. Now, before we even get to Edomites' pride and their eventual humiliation, we need a bit more context. Who are they? Well, as the video already explained, but in case it moved too quickly for you, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, twin brother, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. Jeffrey Krantz provides a helpful summary here. He explains the Israel versus Edom rivalry begins in the book of Genesis. God blessed Abraham, Genesis 12, and that blessing was passed on to his son Isaac. And Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had twins, Esau and Jacob. And that, by the way, is where we're going to pick up our study of the second half of Genesis after Easter, God willing. Uh, but God told Rebekah that one of the nations in her womb would prevail over the other, and that Esau, the older, would serve Jacob, the younger. And then Isaac, his father, accidentally reiterated this promise, making Jacob the master of Esau. And Esau was jealous and vengeful, and he was bent on killing his twin. Jacob and Esau eventually resolved their differences, and God gave them both uh, descendants and a land. Esau's descendants became the na nation of Edom, and Jacob fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. But as time wore on, the relationship between their descendants became strained again. So, for instance, when the Israelites uh, left Egypt for Canaan, the Edomites refused to let them take the highway through their land, and they opposed them militarily. That was Numbers chapter 20. Under King David, God's uh, prediction to Rebekah came true. Edom served Israel as a vassal state. That was 2 Samuel chapter 8. But then after Solomon and Israel turned away from God and the kingdom of Israel became divided, the troubles with Edom reignited in 1 Kings 11 and 2 Kings 8. When God finally exiled Judah to Babylon in the 6th century, Edom helped the Babylonians loot Judah and happily returned to their own <coughs> fortified cities in Mount Seir. Now, it is interesting to note that despite... Edom's quite modest size and significance historically. The Edomites never grew to be more than a small regional player in the Middle East. They never came close to achieving global superpower status like an Egypt or a Syria or Babylon. Yet the sin that they are to be judged for, according to Obadiah, is pride. Pride. <clears throat> He declares in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You say in your heart, 
who will bring me down to the ground? And Obadiah gives us some clues about why the Edomites boast, what they boast in. Four things. They boast in their military prowess, verses 3 and 9, you who live in the clefts of the rocks, your lofty dwelling, your mighty men, their soldiers. They boast in their wealth. We hear about their treasures and their alliances. He mentions all your allies, those at peace with you. And then their wisdom. We hear about the wise men of Edom, the understanding of Esau. So let's unpack each of those four a little bit. Of their military, excuse me, David Murray explains that Edom was built on a natural fortress of high rocks, so it was thought to be virtually impregnable with pride. It's not a matter of of if, but what type. Pride is the root of all sin, according to, to Scripture. It's not just the strongest who trust in their strength. It's not just the richest who idolize money. It's not just the most popular who prioritize human relationships over Christ. It's not just the smartest. See, that's the thing. Edom is such a great example because they were never the strongest, the, the, the wealthiest, the most influential. But you don't have to be the greatest to fancy yourself the greatest. In fact, much of our pride, I think, is actually born out of our insecurity. You remember I shared with you two weeks ago Tim Keller's, uh, I think, excellent definition for pride. He said, pride isn't thinking more of yourself, it's thinking of yourself more. You know, the self-confident and the self-conscious, they both have one thing in common. They are both consumed with thoughts of self. We need to be freed this morning from our pride, from our self-centeredness. We need to hear God's warning this morning, and we need to heed Edom's example. God will humble the proud. He tells us in verse 1, I'm going to rally the nations against Edom in battle. Verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. The reality is Edom is already fairly small. Edom, I think, has a classic case of of little man syndrome or or little nation syndrome. Uh, But God says, I'm going to bring you even lower still. You shall be utterly despised, though you think you soar aloft like the eagle. Your foolish pride, though though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom's attitude here is similar to Lucifer's, isn't it? Think of the way that Satan himself is depicted in Isaiah chapter 14 and his backstory before his fall from grace. Remember, Satan was an angel in God's heavenly court before he was cast out of paradise for his pride, right? God's word says, you you said in your heart, Satan, I, I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And God's word promises us, in Proverbs 16, 18, that what was true of Satan, what was true of Edom, will be true for you and me as well. If we do not repent and humble ourselves, Scripture says pride comes before the fall. Everyone will be humbled. Listen, there is only one throne in heaven, and guess what? You will not be sitting on it question is, will you willingly conquest the region had already been virtually unoccupied? It has indeed been brought to nothing, as Obadiah foretold. No survivor of Esau. 
Friends, will we learn from Edom's example this morning? God will humble the proud, but hear the good news this morning. The good news, the second half of all those verses that you see on the screen there, Proverbs 29, James 4, Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be what? Exalted, right? The only way for you and me to be saved of our sin of pride is to humble yourself, confess your pride, repent of it, turn from it, and acknowledge your need of a Savior from it, and then throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ who died to save you from all your sin and its source, your self-centered pride. He alone gives grace to the humble. Will you trust in Jesus this morning? That's his invitation to you. Number two, God will judge the merciless. He's going to humble the proud and he's going to judge the merciless. Boyce points out that at first glance, these two sections, verses 1 and 9 and verses 10 through 16, they seem to be talking about different things. Pride in verses 1 through 9, unbrotherliness it's kind of the clunky term for it, but it's fitting. Unbrotherliness, Edom's mistreatment of their brother Judah in verses 10 through 16. And Boyce says, these are not, however, entirely different matters. Obadiah is saying that the proof of Edom's pride is in the way that they mistreat Israel. Pride leads to an unjustified sense of personal superiority. And when we feel this way about ourselves, we naturally tend to look down on others and mistreat them. See, there's a reason that Jesus said that the second most important commandment in all of God's word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is like the first, the greatest, that you shall love the Lord your God. They are related. 1 John 4.20 says unequivocally, if anyone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he is a liar. Because the way that you view God will necessarily determine and dictate how you view and relate to his beloved children as well. If, like Edom, you are utterly prideful, your nest is set among the stars and you say in your heart, who can bring me down? If, if you view yourself, if you're flying that high, then how low must you think everyone else is, right? And that's exactly how you're going to treat them. If you genuinely believe that you're, you're so high, you're better than others, you will treat them as though they are inferior. And on the other hand, the other side of pride, if deep down you are afraid that everybody else is so much better than you in your insecurity, then you will constantly be looking for flaws in them, you know, imperfections in them that you can criticize so as to feel marginally less bad about your own shortcomings. That's how bullies are made, right? Classic bullying. Pick on others, put others down so that I'm not the only one who feels like a piece of garbage. If I'm a piece of garbage, then I've got to make you feel even lower than garbage. Whether Edom was, was truly, you know, 
thinking of itself as better than other nations or whether this was a classic case of, of, of little man syndrome, bullying, the end result was the same. They failed to come to the aid of God's people in their time of need, and instead, they opportunistically took advantage of Israel's destruction by Babylon as a chance to gloat and to get ahead themselves. Verse 10, they did violence to Israel, we hear. Verse 11, they stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off Israel's wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, God says, you were like one of them, cried by the Lord. And so like Esau, Cain grew jealous and angry with Abel. And so he murdered Abel. And after that, he was confronted by God. And you remember how the story goes. Cain replied with that now infamous question, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And God's clear answer in the cases of Cain and Esau and the Edomites and us, his consistent answer all through Scripture is a resounding yes. You are your brother's keeper. That is why despite Edom's hatred of Israel, Israel was explicitly commanded in God's law, Deuteronomy 23, 7, to care for Edom. For the Edomite is your brother, God reminded them. Friends, we have real obligations to one another in this life, and especially toward those in our own family. You consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And for Edom's unbrotherliness, God promises in the book of Ezekiel, says, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. It's a nickname for the Edomites. And I will make you a desolation and a waste because you cherished perpetual enmity, sibling rivalry, and you gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. This is the biblical principle of lex talionis, the law of retaliation summed up most famously in Exodus 21, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Blood for blood, life for life. This is the heart of the Old Testament law. The law is all about God's justice. Justice means you get what you deserve. And friends, we need to know this morning that our God is a just God. Isaiah 30, 18, the Lord is a God of justice. Deuteronomy 32, 4, all his ways are justice. Or as God himself puts it here in Obadiah 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And if you and I have even the faintest glimpse of our own sinfulness, God's justice should make us shudder, tremble in the presence of his holiness, knowing our guilt and 
shame, and sinfulness. But, here's the good news, but, praise God that he is also equally a God of mercy. And mercy means not getting what you deserve. Now, how can God be both those things? How can God be equally just and merciful, give you what you deserve, and not give you what you deserve? Seems like a contradiction. We call it a paradox, right? Here's how. Luke 6, 36 says, Your Father is merciful. Lamentations 3.22, his mercies never come to an end. And James 2.13 even declares that his mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, how? How can he be both? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ perfectly satisfied God's justice by enduring the punishment due for every sin you have ever and will ever commit in your lifetime. And in exchange, he now offers you nothing but God's undeserved mercy and love and favor forevermore if you will but trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. No amens? That is the good news of the gospel. You better believe it. Amen. God poured out his justice and his mercy perfectly and fully on the cross and the person and the work of Jesus for you. But if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, the Bible is clear, you will love others the way that Jesus did, and especially your spiritual brothers and sisters in the faith. If you don't, if you don't, then you are not truly saved. Christ has not paid the penalty for your sin. And if you do not repent, you will one day bear the full weight of God's justice personally for yourself for eternity. Be warned this morning, as the Edomites were, for judgment is without mercy, James 2, to the one who has shown no mercy. God promises us, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, Romans 9. But he, he tells us who's going to get it. He's already told us who he's going to choose to receive mercy. He says, blessed are who? The merciful, Matthew 5, for they shall receive mercy. And by contrast, God is going to judge the mercy less. And so returning to Obadiah, there's this really interesting shift that happens in verse 15. From God's justice on the Edomites specifically to his justice for all nations. And turn from our wicked ways, America may soon become the 22nd to join the list. Because the things that we see happening in our country today are so sadly predictable, biblically, of a country that turns its back on and spits in the face of the living Almighty God. But church, do not miss God's prescribed remedy for the situation. God promises there in 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name, 
will humble themselves. Here's the thing. America will not pray and seek God's face because America is not God's chosen people. It never has been. It certainly isn't today. God's kingdom is so much bigger than our little country. Your atheist neighbor who lives across the street from you cannot help you with the coming judgment on America. But you better hope that your true brothers and sisters across the pond in England and Ethiopia and China and Korea and Iran You better hope that Christians all across the globe are on their faces this morning praying for God's forgiveness and healing of our land. Because otherwise, God will judge the merciless and the proud. But here comes the good news. We'll be quicker with points three and four because we're running out of time. But in fairness, Obadiah spent 16 verses on the judgment portion. It's not exactly a feel-good, uh, it's got a feel-good takeaway. We're getting there. But uh, 16 verses of warning against Edom, only five verses of reassurance for Israel. So we're trying to put the emphasis where, where Obadiah does. But we can be assured this morning, if you are God's chosen people, if you are in Christ, the new Israel, you can be assured this morning, number three, that God will deliver his people. God will deliver his people. That's his promise to you here. That even when he is punishing them, God has Judah's back. And the same holds true for you and me this morning. Proverbs 3 assures us that the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12.10 adds, that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And that's what's happening here, right? All the prophets leading up to here had foretold Judah's going to be judged. They're going to go away to exile in Babylon. But God disciplines his son who he loves for their good. And God promises them here in Obadiah 17 that when... They have learned their lesson in exile and they have repented and they have returned to him in faith that in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy now and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Moreover, he's not just going to restore them. He's actually going to enlarge their territory. Verses 19 and 20. He's going to expand their borders. Israel shall now possess Mount Esau. They're taking over these other nations. And the land of the Philistines, the land of Samaria, Gilead, the Canaanites, the cities of the Negev. God disciplines, but then he blesses. And in the same way, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ this morning, we'll see if we get some amens on this one. The only thing more incredible than the reality of God's saving love for you in his son Jesus is that he not only rescues us from darkness into his kingdom of light, but God also promises he will one day empower you to rule that kingdom right alongside him in glory for the rest of eternity. You are a prince, a princess, a son or daughter of the one true almighty king of the universe. That makes you, the way Romans 8 talks about it, is you are a co-heir You are going to be a co-ruler with Christ 
in the kingdom to come forever. Any royalty here this morning? We are all royalty in Christ. And again, that sounds almost blasphemous to say, so let me just show it to you so you don't stone me on your way out this morning. Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is our text from last week, actually. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And here it is. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Did you hear that? That's the promise. So I actually have to go back and redact my earlier comment. We're going to have to edit the sermon video this morning because I said there was only one throne in heaven and you won't be sitting on it. But Revelation 3 and Obadiah 21 just told us you will you will actually be sitting on the throne with him. Jesus is going to scoot over and make room for you, or, or better yet, probably more likely, he's just going to welcome you into his lap to rule with him for all eternity. If, if you are one who conquers, how do you conquer? How do you conquer the, the great enemies of sin and hell, and death itself. Revelation 12, 11 tells us, you can't. <laughs> but he already has. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You can't conquer, he already has. So let me ask you this morning, do you know the Lamb? who sits on the throne, the name above all names? Do you have a testimony, the word of your testimony? Do you have a testimony of faith in him this morning? If you do, on the day of the Lord, Obadiah says, those who have been saved will go up Mount Zion to rule forever, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's question for you this morning is, will you be sitting on the throne with him? Let's pray.